This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, November 15th, 2022, from London here in the UK. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the show. Very glad to have you along every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern for The Guy Benson Show, which becomes a free podcast on demand after the program is over each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Guy Benson Show. We've got a very busy program ahead for you here. Mark Thiessen joining us in the next hour with some election analysis and looking ahead, looking perhaps even at the future of the Republican Party and some of those skirmishes starting as soon as tonight because President Trump is expected to make a big announcement later on. Josh Krasauer of Axios and a Fox News contributor, he will be here in our final hour doing some political analysis as well. We will get in our first hour, about half an hour from right now, to General Jack Keane. And on that front, let me start here with a Fox News alert. The Pentagon saying that they are aware of media reports, but not confirming those reports that supposedly two errant or stray Russian missiles have struck a small village in eastern Poland near the Ukrainian border, where at least two people have died because of those, what we believe, and the initial reports are, to be errant missile strikes. This is significant, of course, not just because people have died, and this is an act of aggression. Poland is a NATO country. An attack on Poland is, through Article 5, this collective defense agreement, an attack on all of NATO. And so the reports are that the Russian foreign minister has been recalled from the G20. My read on this initially is that this is a huge Russian screw-up and incompetence, not a deliberate attack on Poland. But it's a precarious and potentially dangerous moment right now in a day where there's a lot of shelling and the Russians were firing a lot of missiles at the Ukrainians. It at least appears like two of them veered slightly off course and landed not only in NATO territory, but killed some people. General Jack Keane, as I mentioned, will be here to give his instant analysis on that breaking story. Another Fox News alert as we begin today's show. The House of Representatives, as of right now, at this hour, one seat away from becoming a Republican majority. They have allocated or called 217 seats for the Republicans after last week's election. They need, of course, 218 to get to a majority. The Democrats are lagging behind. I am not in any position to call the House. I don't have that particular expertise. What I can tell you, and as I mentioned yesterday, 
it now looks all but inevitable that the Republicans will win the House. And to my eyes, you look at some of these races and where they stand and who's leading and that sort of thing with a certain percentage of the vote counted. The likeliest number or range to me is 220 to 221. 218 is what they need is an absolute bare minimum, right? Knife's edge, 218 to 217. I think it probably ends up in the neighborhood of 220 to 215, which is a mirror image, as I've said, of the current Democratic majority. And Republicans in the House earlier today took a vote. Kevin McCarthy won that vote. He will be the party's nominee for speaker. There were a few dozen dissenters, and that vote, the big one, the chamber-wide vote, including the Democrats, would be in early January, January the 3rd. So there are still a few things up in the air, but as far as I'm concerned, the Republican House majority is effectively, essentially a fait accompli. The question is, how much padding does Republican leadership get? And that final question may not be settled still for days because they take forever to count votes in California, among other reasons. There could be a recount coming in one seat out in Colorado. So that is also something that we are following. On the other side of Capitol Hill, reports emerging just within the last few minutes that Senator Rick Scott of Florida is intending and planning to challenge Mitch McConnell for the Republican leadership position in the United States Senate for the next congressional session. I think that that is a deeply ridiculous idea. With all due respect to Senator Scott, who's been on this show any number of times, we've had him here a lot. He was NRSC chairman this cycle. It hasn't gone very well in that capacity. I know that there is an attempt to scapegoat Mitch McConnell, which I think is wrongheaded in a lot of ways. But I also don't think McConnell's in any real danger. I don't know what Rick Scott actually has in mind, how much support he would actually attract, but perhaps that's something that I'll get into later on with two gentlemen who are smarter than I am on such things, Mark Thiessen and Josh Krasauer, some of these upcoming guests that we mentioned. And how about one more Fox News alert, just for good measure, as it is very busy here at the start of the show. Former President Donald Trump, the 45th president, is expected to announce tonight that he is once again seeking the White House and he will launch a presidential bid for 2024 at Mar-a-Lago. That is the anticipation. That is what has been reported by a lot of different outlets. And we will have reaction uh, probably for days and weeks to that announcement this evening and how he plans to roll this out, if indeed he does, what he decides to focus on and highlight, who he chooses to attack or not, that will all be of interest. For a number of reasons, I think, even if you're rooting for Trump, if you want Trump to run again and you want him to be the Republican nominee, I don't. But if you do, I think this is highly questionable timing for him. And I do wonder if there's going to be, even among some folks inclined to like him, potentially some burnout here. I mean, think of it this way, and I've made this point before. If Trump does do what we're all expecting him to do tonight, Thanksgiving will roll around. He will be a declared presidential candidate next week, of course, when we're all celebrating Thanksgiving. One year from then, Thanksgiving 2023, we will still be almost a year away from the general election, and Trump will already have been a presidential declared candidate for more than a year by next Thanksgiving. 
I mean, that, that is a very, very long time. But we'll keep an eye on what he says tonight, of course. And it's impossible to think about this announcement without also contemplating the types of people who could run against Trump in a Republican nomination fight for 2024. And at the very top of that list, I'm not putting my thumb on the scale. I think it's just undeniable. At the very top of that list in terms of buzz and excitement and momentum is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who won this absolutely thunderous victory of almost 20 points in Florida a week ago. Trump, as we've talked about, has been taking pot shots at DeSantis even before the election. He came up with a nickname for him, Ron DeSanctimonious. I see that Nikki Freed, who's one of these gadflies in Florida, Democrat, who wanted to be governor, lost to Charlie Crist in the primary. Imagine being so weak that you lose to Charlie Crist in a primary at this point, but she did. She's out there tweeting nickname suggestions for DeSantis to Trump. She doesn't like Ron DeSanctimony. She has some better ideas. So she's like, hey, Don, let's workshop this together. It's an interesting set of bedfellows, interesting alliances here, where the hardcore Trump people and the left are trying to team up against DeSantis already, who just won re-election, hasn't announced anything, hasn't said almost anything at all. We talked at length last week about the very long screed that Trump published going after DeSantis, calling him an average Republican governor, disloyal, classless, all that stuff, which did not sit well with a lot of Republicans, including people who voted twice for Donald Trump. And so with DeSantis just kind of hanging out, waiting, doing the work of the people of Florida, trying to, I guess, let people have a tiny bit of a breather from politics after the election, he doesn't have to rush into anything, DeSantis, nor does really anyone else. Trump is making that choice right now for himself. But one of the things that I was wondering about, and we talked about it here, was how would DeSantis react to all of this? Because inevitably, DeSantis is far from an idiot. He knows that the first time he would get in front of some reporters and answer some questions about anything, since he has been absolutely silent on what Trump said about him, someone would ask him about it. And lo and behold, that happened earlier today. And... My argument has been DeSantis should do his best not to take the bait. And I would argue that he did precisely that, i.e. not take the bait in a smart and effective and disciplined way. Just a few hours ago, the front end of this soundbite you're about to hear is the reporter asking the question, which is a Trump-based question, about the presidential announcement, about the attacks against DeSantis, and then DeSantis answers it the way that he wants to answer, answer it with the framing that he wants to put out there in Cut 23. We would like to know what you think about Trump's big announcement and some of the less than flattering comments he has made about you. Well, you know, one of the things I've learned, like learned in this job is um, uh, when you're do, when you're leading, when you're getting getting things done, yeah, you take incoming fire. That's just the nature of it. Uh, I roll out of bed in the morning. I've got corporate media outlets that have a spasm, just the fact that I'm getting up in the morning. And it's constantly attacking. And this is just what's happened. I don't think any governor got attacked more, particularly by corporate media, than me over my four-year term. And yet I think what you, what you learn is all that's just noise. 
And really what matters is, are you leading? Are you getting in front of issues? Uh, are you delivering results for people? And are you standing up for folks? And if you do that, then none of that stuff matters. And, and that's what we've done. We focused on results and leadership. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I would just uh, tell people to go check out the scoreboard from last Tuesday night. Uh, the fact of the matter is... Yeah, you know, the fact of the matter is, we um, it, it was the the, the greatest uh, Republican victory in the history of the state of Florida. I think that is masterful. The bait was not taken. Notice there was not a single reference at all to Trump in that answer. Nothing. He took the question about Trump's attacks. He ignored the question about Trump's announcement tonight. He took the question about Trump's attacks and turned it into media attacks and the way that he gets attacked all the time and how he responds to that and why he approaches leadership the way that he does and how ultimately it is about results. And, oh, by the way, speaking of results, how about a quick glance at last week's scoreboard here in Florida? Just A+. plus. Bait not taken, point absolutely made, Trump unmentioned. Trump almost certainly has seen some of the new polling that's out in the last few days. If he was ranting against DeSantis last week, you can only imagine what he's thinking now. The YouGov poll that we brought up yesterday, national poll that has DeSantis pulling in front ahead of Trump nationally. The Club for Growth, I guess they were polling this in a number of states the potential horse race. And Trump has flipped upside down against DeSantis in all of the states that they just released polling in. And it's like double digits. If memory serves, in fact, let me pull up the numbers here. Well, there's a poll out of Texas that was not the Club for Growth polling that had just in October, Trump 46, DeSantis 29, everyone else in single digits. Then the election happened. The new numbers, same poll, Texas, DeSantis 43, Trump 32. They just flipped spots, everyone else in the single digits. Those are the Republican voters in the state of Texas. The Club for Growth numbers, Iowa, where DeSantis is now up by 11 against Trump head-to-head. New Hampshire, where Trump is trailing by 15 points to DeSantis now. These are reversals, by the way. In Florida, DeSantis up 26 points head-to-head against Trump. And in Georgia, it's plus 20 for Ron DeSantis. Now, look, I'm under no illusions that this stuff really means much of anything right now. It is ludicrous early, which is why I think it's ludicrous to be announcing a presidential run tonight, which apparently Trump is going to do. A thousand things can change. And also, one-on-one polling doesn't really help because it won't be one-on-one. It'll be potentially... 12 to 15 to 20 people in the race. So it's not quite that clean. That said, obviously, palpably, there has been a shift with a lot of people looking at what happened last week and giving a very serious, hard look at Ron DeSantis to the detriment of Donald Trump, at least for now. And I guess we'll see what Trump does tonight. We've now seen DeSantis's first foray in responding, which I thought, as I said, was Uh, Extremely well done. And on and on we go. 
I thought we might get a breather on the news and politics just a little bit after the election. Apparently, no, <laughs> which is why we're here every single day, 3 to 6 Eastern, to have it all broken down for you as best we can. Great guests still ahead on a host of huge issues just getting started. It's The Guy Benson Show from London. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. We will get to General Jack Keane in the next segment and this potentially escalatory event in Poland in Russia's war in Ukraine. That's coming up. First here, I want to give just a few more straight thoughts on the election that happened a week ago. I've seen, for example, a number of people complaining about the vote system and the vote counting systems in some of these states, and I wholeheartedly agree. I did a pretty passionate monologue about it last week. It's absurd. It's almost insulting that in a country like this, some of the states have seen fit to adopt such embarrassing and non-credible systems. And I think that there are better ways to do it. I think what Georgia did with their reforms was good, made a lot of sense. I know it got called Jim Crow and voter suppression. They had record-setting turnout for a midterm, record-setting in Georgia, the opposite of suppression. In fact, they had significantly higher voter turnout than in New York. So that's an interesting little game to play about the liars who screamed Jim Crow. You can also adopt just wholesale the Florida model post-2000, which has been extremely reliable and successful. The other point I'll make, though, and a bunch of conservatives are now, I think, rightly making this point, from Katie Pavlich to Eric Erickson to Phil Kirpin and others, if there's a system in place, even if Republicans don't love the system and they don't have the ability to reform it or change it, they have to adopt the system and adapt to the reality. You can't just basically throw up your hands saying, oh, well, we want to vote on Election Day. We'll let the Democrats just kind of seed the field. Democrats can be banking votes for weeks. We're not going to do that because we don't like this. They've got to lean into the rules and exploit them. The other side is doing it. The other side sometimes set the rules. Sometimes they don't set the rules. They are exploiting the rules to their advantage. Republicans have to do it the same way. And if that means getting some Republican voters a lot more comfortable with mail-in ballots or early voting or what have you, When we've seen that in places like Florida and North Carolina, Republicans have done that to great effect. You've got to use the rules as they exist if you can't change those rules. So lean into it and go do it. Like, for example, ballot harvesting. It's insane. It's legal in California. I think that's a terrible idea, but it's the law out there. So Republicans, after getting crushed in 2018, they started ballot harvesting in churches in 2020 to great effect. The left went crazy, but those are the rules. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back on the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting from London today. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. Fox News alert. The story that we led with at the top of the show, a development in Poland where reportedly two Russian missiles, errant missiles that were presumably aimed at Ukraine, actually landed in Poland and killed at least two people in a small village. And for reasons that should be pretty immediately obvious, that could be a potentially combustible situation given the NATO nation status of Poland. The Department of Defense reacting just a short while ago with spokesperson Patrick Ryder in Cut 24 saying this. Let me go ahead and highlight up front that we are aware of the press reports alleging that two Russian missiles have struck a location inside Poland near the Ukraine border. I can tell you that we don't have any information at this time to corroborate those reports. Uh, and are looking into this further. And so when we do have an update to provide, we'll be sure to do so. But he also added this in Cut 25. Biden has said a few times that the U.S. will defend every inch of NATO territory. If these reports are true, what does that look like for the administration? Yeah, thanks, Peter. So, so, you know, as I mentioned, we're looking into these reports, don't have any information to corroborate them at this time. So I don't want to speculate or get into hypotheticals. When it comes to our security commitments uh, and Article 5, we've been crystal clear that we will defend every inch of NATO territory. Just minutes ago, the State Department putting out this statement, quote, the United States is certainly not trying to escalate. We are not at a point where we can confirm some of the reports that we are seeing. That's why I'm telling you this is coming from the State Department, that we will determine what exactly has transpired and we will determine appropriate next steps. So... So far, treading pretty lightly. Joining us now is General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman for the Institute for the Study of War and a Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, as always, we're very glad to have you here. Sure. Delighted to be here. All right. So this was always part of the risk. If the Russians were going to keep fighting and doing so incompetently, at least to my eyes, not that I have any insight here, but it seems like this was probably a colossal screw-up on their part. If you fire a bunch of missiles and even one of them lands in the wrong place, given some of the commitments that are out there in international alliances, they could create a big, big problem for themselves. Do you agree with me that this was probably a mistake on Russia's part as opposed to a deliberate act of aggression? And then now what? Yeah, I, I suspect so. I mean, there's, there's no military target of value in the area there. Um, and it, it could be an errant missile, which they have a surprising uh, a lot of. Uh, we don't really talk too much about how many missiles actually miss their target, but it's uh, quite amazing how many really do. And the second thing is uh, a Ukrainian air defense system could have deflected a missile 
and, and made it an errant missile in, in terms of whatever debris was left. So oh, we, we don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't understand why the Pentagon can't make a call to Poland and confirm the fact that they do have two dead and they and it came from a missile. That wouldn't take too hard to do. I know that uh, it's reported that uh, the Polish National Security Council is holding a meeting on this subject, which is certainly um, uh, very appropriate. But I think we'll we'll get to the we'll get to the facts here. I don't think this is going to rise to a situation, you know, which would require some kind of a NATO response, unless there's clear evidence that uh, that this was intentional. And you started out by actually pointing out to our audience something that happens every single day uh, dealing with Russia's military activities inside Ukraine, a fair degree of incompetence. And this could be another display of that, but we don't know the facts yet. Yeah, so what would trigger an Article 5 response from NATO? Is it, like, let's say we're able to establish here in the coming hours or coming days that these were Russian missiles that did, in fact, fly into Poland, crash, explode, detonate, kill at least two Poles is at least the the initial report. Does there also have to be intent, like a a war-making intent, an act of aggression intent on Russia's part to then do something? And and if it's just a mistake and the Russians just say, oops, right, number one, do you believe the Russians because they lie all the time about everything? And is it acceptable to say, oh, well, don't do that again, uh, you know, but we'll give you a mulligan here because it was just a mistake. I'm just trying to figure out what the appropriate response would be, even if the determination is that this was not intentional. Yeah, uh, I doubt uh, seriously it would require a military response, given the scenario that you unfolded there. Uh, if it, if their intent was really to hit a military target, and, and we can prove that based on a trajectory, et cetera, and they just were not able to achieve that, and that changes the scenario a little bit, and it would it may uh, that decision would have to be made by NATO, and, and certainly Poland would have a large say about all of that. Um, then there, there could possibly be an option, you know, to, for a very limited response. I remember when uh, our drone got shot down by the IRGC Iranians in the Trump administration, and. Uh, I went on Fox and said it's very likely that this drone uh, was shot down at a tactical level without the permission of people at the senior level, and the tactical leader was just responding to it. And uh, and I and I also referenced uh, a mistake that was made by a Navy destroyer, or it could have been a cruiser, I, I forget which, which fired on an Iranian airliner. Uh, because the chain of command at the tactical level actually believed that airliner uh, was indeed an Iranian aircraft, a fighter aircraft uh, that could have been threatening to them. And uh, so these things do happen, and you know it takes some judgment uh, on the part of leaders to uh, to make what is a, you know, take a reasonable course of action based on. What really is the motivation and intent of the of the country you're dealing with? Right. And I would guess, General, and you can please opine if you agree or disagree, the simplest and least sinister and threatening explanation here, the most obvious explanation was this was a mistake and therefore would not trigger a war. 
That being said, let's say that is confirmed. It was a mistake. I would guess that Putin would have to be furious because this is just another humiliation and in this case, a dangerous humiliation based on a failure and an ineptitude, another demonstrated ineptitude of Russia's military, right? I can't imagine that some of the people in charge of Russia's military are terribly excited to answer the phone right now if they know who's on the other line, if in fact this was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I, I likely think they'll... Uh, guy that they they're somewhat conditioned by it you know because there's so much of this haplessness you know on their part that there's no it, it wouldn't serve our audience well to go through the litany of all of it uh, but some of it is just really extraordinary you know right from the very beginning they were making uh, something i'm very familiar with because i i commanded the uh, most of the United States uh, conventional uh, parachute forces, what we call them airborne forces, when I was a corps commander at Fort Bragg. And we we planned uh, airborne operations to take airfields, uh, usually close to a major targets uh, like a capital city, et cetera. And the, their airborne forces came into that uh, uh, famous airfield that we focused on so much on television and radio that was uh, northwest of uh, Kiev. And they, this is their premier fighting force. And they came into that airport to conduct the parachute operations. And the Ukrainians blew cargo planes out of the sky. I mean, killed hundreds and hundreds of paratroopers. Not well, not reported and known at the time until uh, damage assessment was made uh, a number of weeks later and then, and then determined. What a way to start a campaign and a, and a war. So there's been one thing after another that the Russians have really had to— uh, had to cope with. And, and certainly this is another evidence of all the problems that they have. Let's zoom out on some of the context here, because I think this also matters. This was part, these were not two random missiles. These were two of a bunch of missiles that were being fired at Ukraine today, this barrage, this flurry. Why were the Russians doing this today? And do you think any of it was just kind of some sort of retaliation or response to yet another humiliation that they've suffered recently, pulling out of a key city and retreating from a key city in Ukraine. It seems like the headlines have been bad for them. Maybe the leadership said, oh, let's fire off some missiles to show that we're still strong and potent or whatever. And then they maybe screwed up here and made the situation even worse. That's conjecture. But talk about the barrage that was coming today and that retreat that we saw from the Russians in recent days. Yeah, well, certainly the 85 missiles reportedly fired today is absolutely in response uh, to the Hersan withdrawal and 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 the victory lap that uh, President Zelensky took uh, yesterday uh, in Hersan City and the celebration that took place with the with the uh, Ukrainian people and understanding the emotional rel- relief that they felt uh, and, and certainly that's incredible. A setback for Russia. I mean, it, it's on a par with the initial setback and not being able to take the capital and topple the government. This is the most significant operational victory since that time uh, for the for the Ukrainians, and and it falls on the heels of what we know this uh, false narrative, where Putin tried to obtain a political victory 
after uh, another defeat around Kharkiv uh, by annexing these four territories in inside of Ukraine and claiming that they're now Russian territory when he only owned a piece of each of them. And now he's lost the only provincial capital that Russia had seized since the war began. And, well, and right not only that, middle, if, unless I'm mistaken, General, when the Ukrainians came back in, because the Russians had pulled out out of necessity, the Ukrainian returning forces were greeted very warmly by the locals because it was always a giant farce, this fairy tale that the Russians were telling that, oh, these are ethnically Russian people and they want us to be here. And uh, obviously that isn't true, as once again evidenced just in the last couple of days. Yeah, and, and the reason why there's so much passion on the part of uh, President Zelensky and and also his military forces and, and the people who are being liberated. While taking back the land is important, uh, and, and certainly the power that goes with that, but what it really is is the liberation of the Ukrainians. I mean, the daughters, the mothers, the sisters are being routinely raped in occupied Russian territory inside of Ukraine. The men are tortured and killed, and we find them in mass graves, and likely we're gonna, this will happen here. Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians under Russian occupation have been moved to Russia to include thousands of children. So when they liberate uh, something like Hershon City, this is a huge, not only military victory, but a huge emotional event for the people as well as the military force involved. General, since you are here, I know the biggest breaking news is the situation with Poland and Russia's uh, Ukraine war. I do want to ask you, though, about another big story that we were covering just yesterday, which is President Biden's meeting that he had in Indonesia with Xi Jinping of China. And I know that you probably saw some of the comments. Maybe you read the White House readout of those two leaders, the G20 going on. And relatedly, there are reports emerging today that uh, the the foreign secretary of the Russian Federation was there at the G20 and has now left because they've got a little bit of a crisis on their hands, probably of their own creation again. Um, so uh, he's he's out. Uh, that's the report coming out here. But just focusing again on Biden and Xi, did you any did you have any rather big takeaways from that summit or at least what we know about it? Yeah, well, a, a couple things on the positive side. Uh, both leaders agreed to open the door to further talks, particularly among their staff, which had been shut down, you know, for much of this year. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, President Xi, uh, obviously, along with President Biden, both agreed that the use of nuclear weapons in uh, in Ukraine is, is, is absolutely inappropriate and, and should not be done. A third thing uh, is President Biden brought to his attention uh, that he would like uh, President Xi's influence to curb Kim Jong-un's uh, rather uh, <clears throat> reckless behavior in firing off all of these ballistic missiles and heading heading towards a nuclear test. Now, those, I think, were uh, relatively positive events. But the, the big takeaway are the negative events because they're so significant. One is, l- listen, the United States China and the world writ large are concerned that we're edging towards war among two superpowers over Taiwan. And the fact that President Biden did not put on the table that it's President Xi's behavior that has changed the status quo 
and the peace and stability that the Taiwan Straits Act of the of 1979, called the Taiwan Relations Act, is what it promulgates that both sides will maintain peace and stability. That was called the status quo. As a matter of fact, President Xi, for 10 years, has displayed incredible intimidation and aggression of Taiwan and the South China Sea area, and has threatened the use of force time and time again, as late as the 20th Party Congress just two weeks ago. And President Biden, I think, having said four times in response to questions by media that he would respond militarily if President Xi took it upon himself to attack, that he didn't look President Xi in the face and in the eye and tell him what no uncertain term, that if you take this act of aggression yourself to take charge of Taiwan by force, then I'm going to have to respond, and I will encourage the allies to respond. That yeah, and it sounds like the, the take here is, or perhaps the takeaway is, based on what we know, because we don't know everything, what was said privately, maybe the story was what was not said, as opposed to some of the positive things that were apparently said. General Jack King, we have to leave it right there, up on a break. Retired four-star general, Fox News colleague here. General, thank you so much. Yeah, great talking to you, Guy, and your audience. Thank you. Stepping aside briefly, coming right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the hour, I spoke briefly about sort of the mechanics of voting and the systems for voting and the way that Republicans might need to adapt to new times. I think that's absolutely part of the conversation as we look at what happened last week and look toward the future. Also part of it, well beyond the mechanics, is the types of candidates being put up. The voters who ultimately decide and swing these races have made abundantly clear that they are willing, if not eager, to vote for Republicans of a certain sort. But there's other types of Republicans that they're just not going to vote for. Like the Stop the Steal candidates almost exclusively got defeated, even in red areas on Tuesday night. That is a lesson here. It's interesting. I see a lot of journalists saying, oh, here's a whole list of election deniers who lost on Tuesday. Okay, I don't agree with election denial. Interestingly and strangely, on these lists that they're celebrating, an election denier not mentioned who lost is a certain election denier in Georgia. Stacey Abrams, who very much is one. She's lost again. All right. Mark Thiessen, Josh Krasauer, still coming up on The Guy Benson Show. Another hour straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It is a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show from London. Thanks so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day on demand. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Please go ahead and shoot us a follow if you would like. Joining us now is Mark Thiessen, columnist of the Washington Post, Fox News contributor, fellow at AEI, and former presidential speechwriter for George W. Bush. Mark, great to have you back here. Good to be back with you, Guy. Well, I want to talk about the recent past, the present, and the near-term future here over the next 10 minutes or so. Let's start with the recent past 
and the election that happened a week ago. I know that we're still working out a couple things here, final details. But what I want to ask you about specifically is on the Senate side, where the Democrats are going to retain control of the upper chamber, either 50-50 with the tiebreaker if Herschel Walker wins in December in Georgia, or 51-49, they lose a seat if Raphael Warnock wins that runoff. I have seen almost like a sport in certain quarters on the right, the blame McConnell brigade chiming in and chirping up like Mitch McConnell is the problem here. And McConnell, in my book, Mark, is not above criticism. Everyone makes mistakes. I think when there is a disappointment or a failure by a political party, a lot of people might share somewhat in the blame. And I could maybe point to a few things. Should he have been spending money for Lisa Murkowski? In Alaska, was he doing enough in Arizona? Was there some weird game of chicken in terms of funding Blake Masters? I'm not saying that McConnell should not answer for anything. But in the scheme of things, I think it is like almost exactly backwards to come after Mitch this way, the way some people are, which it seems like, I don't know, projection or opportunism. What do you make of it? And what's your argument on this front? So, number one, uh, Mitch McConnell raised and his PACs and associated PACs spent $241 million uh, to bail out the weakest team of, of nominees, most of them promoted by Donald Trump, that the, that the uh, Senate has seen since Christine O'Donnell, the witch, and Sharon Angle in 2010 uh, were nominated uh, for the Senate. And were it not for his efforts, we would be in a situation where the Democrats would probably have enough votes uh, to bypass Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin and enact their agenda and get rid of the filibuster. So just for one perfect example, the Donald Trump claims credit for J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance, when he won the nomination with Trump's help, was had exactly $400,000 in the bank and almost a million dollars in campaign debt. From his from his from his primary bid, he uh, he was uh, he, the, his opponent had raised tens of millions of dollars and was pummeling him and raising his negatives. Donald Trump spent almost nothing in financially to help J.D. Vance, and Mitch McConnell came in and spent thirty-two million dollars. And J.D. Vance, by the way, raised almost nothing. I think his total his total fundraising was something in the area of five million or nine million or something like that compared to like 43 million by his opponent. And Mitch McConnell came in, spent $32 million and saved that Senate seat. J.D. Vance was such a weak candidate that Mike DeWine won that state by almost 25 points. He won by seven, I think. The so governor, the Republican governor. The, the, Mike, the, the governor. So the same ticket, Republican governor, 25 points. And, and J.D. Vance was in a, in a neck-and-neck tie up until the last couple of weeks of the campaign. It was because of Mitch McConnell's spending that he made it over the top. Donald Trump spent nothing. So if you, that, that's Trump's biggest claim to credit. He spent something like $57 million trying to bail out Mehmet Oz. In Pennsylvania, you've got Ron Johnson, who now reportedly is slamming McConnell and trying to and and uh, and uh, considering a leadership challenge to him. McConnell spent twenty five million dollars saving his seat. Um, and the re the reality is that people say, well, Mitch McConnell should have spent more money to save Blake Masters. Well, if he didn't have to spend thirty two million dollars in Ohio, a red state where Rob Portman won that same Senate seat by 20 points. Uh, Mike DeWine won his governorship by 25 points. If we had a candidate who could win 20 by 20 points, there would have been $32 million more to spend elsewhere. 
So, you know, there was there was no money left. His job, people complaining that he was he was defending Lisa Murkowski. It's his job to defend incumbents. He's the Senate majority leader. That's that's what his job is. And so, you know, we, we the reality is, is that Donald Trump saddled the Republican Party with weak candidates who needed to be bailed out. Mitch McConnell, he did, then he didn't spend almost any of his money. He, he raised $161 million during this election cycle. And he, you know how much he spent total? $14.7 million. The rest of it he pocketed for his, uh, for his, for his super PAC, right? If he, he's, do, he's doing fundraising right now for, for Herschel Walker where there's an email. I got this email in my box the other day. The de- you give the save Herschel Walker. The default is, if you don't change it, that 90% of the money goes to Trump and 10% goes to Herschel Walker. So he's grifting off of these candidates, and he did the same thing with Masters. And Mitch McConnell came in and raised money and spent money and saved these candidates and rescued us from what had been an absolute debacle where they could have bypassed Mansion and Cinema. So the idea that Mitch McConnell is somehow to blame. And then you've got Rick Scott, who is the mo- who is, whose job it was as senator, head of the senatorial committee, to elect Republicans this Senate, failed miserably. And not only failed miserably, he had spent, by August, raised and spent $181 million and had no, no money in the bank in August at the start of the campaign season and had to pull ads out from other states. He pulled out of uh, – the reason why McConnell ended up pulling out of New Hampshire is because Rick Scott pulled out 17 days before. He, McConnell had spent $16 million in, in New Hampshire to try and help, hoping that he would supplement what the senatorial committee was. But because the senatorial committee was such a disaster, he couldn't carry the race alone, especially since it was a long shot and he had to save J.D. Vance. And he's had to try and save Mehmet Oz. So Rick Scott pulled out of New Hampshire. And so McConnell had to pull out, too. So Rick Scott is an absolute disaster as chairman of the senatorial committee. And the idea that he deserves a promotion and he should be the guy to replace Mitch McConnell is one of the most laughable things I've ever heard in my 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 all my years in Washington. Mark, I'm sure we'll have conversations moving forward about Donald Trump. He's got this announcement tonight. He's expected to run for president again. This two year campaign that he's going to launch at Mar-a-Lago. We think this evening that's all the reporting. The backdrop to that is a whole slew of polls that I'll probably get into at some point, uh, whether today or later in the week, but a bunch of state-level polls released by different organizations showing a pretty dramatic shift away from Trump toward Ron DeSantis in these hypothetical one-on-ones. And I understand that's not necessarily how it would work. It'd probably be a crowded field, which could benefit Trump. But the adherence to Trump has dwindled quite a lot in the last week because I think people saw what just happened in these elections. DeSantis is really having a moment. We can talk about that, whether it's sustainable, whether he can go the distance, whether he's going to run at all. Those are all interesting questions. But Trump is announcing very early, it would seem tonight, extremely early. He's seen these polls. He saw what happened in Florida a week ago. He's launched some of these blistering attacks unprovoked at Ron DeSantis and to some extent Glenn Youngkin as well. And DeSantis was asked about the president's barbs earlier today by a reporter, and this was the answer from the governor. I want to play it for you and then get your quick reaction. Cut 23. We would like to know what you think about Trump's big announcement and some of the less than flattering comments he has made about you. Well, you know, one of the things I've learned, like learned in this job is um, 
when you're do when you're leading, when you're getting getting things done, yeah, you take incoming fire. That's just the nature of it. Uh, I roll out of bed in the morning. I've got corporate media outlets that have a spasm just the fact that I'm getting up in the morning, and it's constantly attacking. And this is just what's happened. I don't think any governor got attacked more, particularly by corporate media, than me over my four-year term. And yet, I think what you what you learn is all that's just noise. And really what matters is, are you leading? Are you getting in front of issues? Uh, are you delivering results for people? And are you standing up for folks? And if you do that, then none of that stuff matters. And, and that's what we've done. We focused on results and leadership. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I would just uh, tell people to go check out the scoreboard from last Tuesday night. Uh, the fact of the matter is, Yeah, you know, the fact of the matter is, we um, it, it was the the, the greatest uh, Republican victory in the history of the state of Florida. Mark, it's a long soundbite, but I wanted to play the whole thing for you. We have about a minute left in the segment. Your reaction to what you just heard? So, Ron DeSantis won by twenty points. He won Hispanics. He won Independents. He won women. Not just improved his margin, won them decisively. Um, do do Republicans want to do that on the national level? Because because he seems to be a good choice if that's what you want to do. Um, look, Donald Trump, I consider to be one of the greatest presidents of my lifetime. I mean, the, the Abraham Accords are worthy of a Nobel Prize. Uh, Operation Warp Speed, greatest public health achievement in history. I, I, I've written column after column after column laying out his achievements. But he's he's he is number one. Uh, he he lost terribly on Tuesday, and I think Republicans realize that. And two, he's making a big mistake going after Ron DeSantis. It's one thing to go after Liz Cheney. I think that 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 really energizes the MAGA base. Uh, they loved Ron DeSantis too, and I think he's alienated a lot of people in his base. We we learned on the election is you can't win with just your base. Donald Trump alienated swing voters; they're never going to vote for him. Now he's alienating his own base by going after Ron DeSantis as a self-destruction strategy. Well, it seems like this conversation that we're having is just getting started, and might even kick into the next gear later this evening. We'll be watching Mark Thiessen, Washington Post columnist, Fox News contributor, former presidential speechwriter, our guest on the Guy Benson Show. Mark, thank you. Thanks for having me on. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We talked yesterday with Tom Homan about the border crisis and some of the shuffling of personnel in the Biden administration. But the numbers are what they are, and the crisis continues to rage on because of the fundamental policies and the weaknesses of those policies coming from this administration from the very top, from day one. They wanted to signal that they were not Trump, and so even successful policies that were working, they jettisoned as this reflexive, partisan, tribal thing. And the result has been a completely unacceptable, out-of-control catastrophe at the border. A human catastrophe, just like human rights just a crisis down there, and then there's a national sovereignty crisis connected to it, a public safety crisis connected to it. It's awful. It has been very, very disturbing to watch, and we've been covering it extremely closely. And just because the elections are over doesn't mean that we stop covering, I think, still one of the top stories in the country, especially since so many other people won't really talk about it. 
And I think that's by design. They don't want to talk about it. The more people find out about it, the more upset that they get. And so it is, for the most part, glossed over, memory hold, or ignored. The reason that I'm bringing it up here today is because we had gotten some preliminary numbers about border encounters in October, so last month. And it was another month over 200,000. But those were not the official numbers. Now we have the official numbers, and they are, well, I'd call them staggering, except, are they? In some twisted way, they're expected. They're par for the course, the totally unsustainable, disastrous course. But this is business as usual under this administration. So Customs and Border Patrol will be getting a new chief soon announced that there were 230,678 migrant encounters at the southern border in the month of October. That's the first month of the new fiscal year. So we had these absolutely insane numbers of encounters last fiscal year, well over 2 million. And it's already off to this start, which is by far worse than it was last October which was already historically bad. Bill Malugin reporting the numbers. So it was 230,678 last month. One year prior, with the crisis fully underway, it was 164,000 and change. So it went from 164K to 230, almost 231,000 year over year. With the crisis deepening, the crisis getting worse, The crisis getting worse. Again, the statistics speaking more loudly than anyone else could. And unfortunately, there's a lot of horrible vignettes and pictures and images that accompany these statistics. They're not just numbers. They're people that represent a failure, a very bad failure, one that is really designed to do what's happening, right? A failure by design. And the reason that they haven't changed course, even in the face of this disaster, is because they don't want to. They are ideologically committed to this and incapable and unwilling of changing. To certain elements of the hard left, this is a feature, not a bug, of the border policy. They know that the American people won't stand for this overall, which is why I think it's kept for the most part as hush-hush as possible by their friends in the mainstream media. But these are the numbers, right? You go back to October of fiscal year 19 or fiscal year 2020 in October under Trump, 45,000. Fiscal year 19, it was 60,000. And it came down, it started to climb just a little bit and then exploded once Biden took office. And 164K last October was bad, 231 almost thousand. This year, it's, I mean, it's just... Breathtaking. And the initial estimate that we saw in terms of gotaways, known, documented gotaways that they detected or that they saw but couldn't apprehend because resources are stretched so thin, was 64,000 plus, and that number is probably higher now, maybe pushing 70,000 or beyond. That is thousands of people every day coming in, not getting caught, not getting apprehended. Think of that as we have blown well past one million known gotaways on this president's watch so far. 
And then amazingly, I saw this story that Democrats in Congress are now floating potential plans to tie a DACA-type bill or fix, which is the Dreamers, to an omnibus must-pass spending bill to try to force Republicans' hand on the issue. This strategy rolled out, basically, or at least mentioned as a possibility, the same day that we got this number, 230,678 migrant encounters in the month of October with probably in the ballpark of 70,000 known Godways. They're like, you know what? Let's incentivize this even more with a DACA bill that will try to tie to something else using one of these D.C. tricks that they employ. I'm actually someone who is in favor of a DREAM Act. I've said that for a long time. But I think not a single move should be made toward any type of path to anything for someone coming here illegally or some sort of amnesty or legal status, that all must be put on hold until this crisis is brought under control. And I say that again as a supporter of the underlying idea, because this just, it cannot go on. I know we keep saying it, it is going on, and we want to highlight it as often as we can. Because if we're not going to do it and others in our realm aren't going to do it, then it's just a crisis that no one talks about as a bunch of people avert their eyes deliberately for political reasons, which is just disgusting to me. With that, we will break. We'll come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Halfway through the program, here from London today, I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free, on demand every single day. Something that we've talked about a number of times, and of course we covered it extensively at the time, but we have revisited it on multiple occasions when it's been relevant to news cycles, and also I think it's consistently relevant to President Biden's job approval rating, which is poor, Democrats overperforming, his terrible ratings pretty significantly last week. But if you go back and you look at the trajectory of President Biden's popularity and the public approving or disapproving of the job he was doing, the inflection point was the summer of 2021, August, which coincided with the absolute fiasco in Afghanistan. Most Americans, based on the polling, supported the policy President Biden to withdraw U.S. troops from that country after an extremely long war over the course of decades. Post 9-11, of course, is when it started. However, the way that that policy was conducted and carried out was so humiliating and embarrassing to the United States, so incompetent. In fact, incompetent to the point of lethality that the American people lost confidence in the administration and the president at that moment you could really like almost see it in real time where the lines crossed president biden was relatively popular and then he went underwater and he has never recovered since because even though americans unless it's a huge front burner issue typically don't vote on foreign policy i think that failure in afghanistan is something that stuck with a lot of people in terms of their perception of this president. 
and the administration over which he's presiding. And they have worked very hard. I mean, even more so than the border crisis, which we were just talking about in the last segment. They have worked very hard to wash away any conversation about Afghanistan. Right. As far as they're concerned, they would like every American to never utter the word again, never think about it, never go back in their minds to what that was like in the summer of 2021. They want to check the box, basically say that they kept a foreign policy or campaign promise and just hope that people don't really think too hard about it. And what has been left behind in that country, including thousands of people that we had pledged to get out. Americans, green card holders, permanent legal residents, and Afghans, thousands of them, tens of thousands of them who had helped us, helped our military, helped our State Department, helped our CIA, helped our intelligence apparatus at great risk to themselves. And they were made a solemn pledge by the United States government, by this president specifically, that they would not be left behind. Anyone who wanted to get out could because their lives would be at risk from whatever might descend into chaos after the U.S. got out. And, of course, they told us that it wouldn't descend into chaos and it wouldn't get taken over by a terrorist organization. And, of course, we could see the whole thing cascading in the wrong direction. And they just didn't change the plan at all. And thousands of people were left behind. And Americans of many political stripes were disgusted. Whether you thought it was the right move to get out or not, the way it was done was awful. And the reason that I bring it up is that there's an update on this front. I saw this a few days ago, and I've been meaning to get to it. The Washington Free Beacon with this report. Headline from reporter Adam Credo. White House won't say how it spent $1 billion in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Subheadline, State Department stonewalls watchdog looking into taxpayer funds. So we cut and ran out of that country. We did it the way that we did it. We all remember. We left all those people behind. A terrorist organization took over the country in our wake. And yet a lot of money is still flowing. To say nothing of the billions of dollars of military equipment that we left there that then fell into the hands of literal terrorists because the whole thing was done in such a sloppy and shoddy way. Money is still being spent. And there's this watchdog, a special inspector general, whose job, the job of this office, is to keep tabs on the spending over there. It was established in 2008, so years after the war began. And this inspector general has gotten the participation and cooperation of administrations of both political parties until now. So here's this free beacon story. The State Department says it will not comply with a government watchdog's investigation into how more than a billion dollars in U.S. taxpayer funds was spent in Afghanistan since the Taliban terror group retook control of the country. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, a government watchdog established in 2008 to perform oversight on America's $146 billion reconstruction project in the war-torn country, announced that for the first time in its history, the State and Treasury Departments will not comply with its investigations. Quote, SIGAR, which is the acronym, for the first time in its history is unable this quarter to provide Congress and the American people with a full accounting of this U.S. government spending due to the non-cooperation of U.S. agencies. 
the watchdog disclosed in its latest report to Congress. The United States Agency for International Development, or USAID, which allocates American foreign aid, said, quote, the Treasury Department refused to cooperate with SIGAR in any capacity, while the State Department was selective in the information it provided pursuant to the audit and quarterly data requests. The special inspector general says the Biden administration's refusal to cooperate with its investigation into the allocation of $1.1 billion in U.S. taxpayer money since the Taliban regained power constitutes, quote, a direct violation of the watchdog group's congressional mandate. This was established by Congress. This is a law. This is required. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't a maybe. This is a you shall. This is a mandate. And the Biden administration is directly violating that mandate now. The Biden administration is doing this. It's a decision that they've made, unlike the Trump administration, unlike the Obama administration. And presumably at the very tail end, the Bush administration as well. Because this thing got going while Bush was still president. That was the 08 inception of this watchdog. They write, until now, no federal agency has challenged SIGAR's authority to conduct oversight of such programs. This is new. The standoff, writes the Free Beacon, Adam Credo, is the latest controversy surrounding the Biden administration's botched 2021 evacuation from Afghanistan. A State Department official further, quote, informed SIGAR that department staff have now received internal direction not to engage with or speak to SIGAR without prior clearance from state legal counsel a directive that violates laws meant to protect government whistleblowers and to protect the watchdog's investigatory powers, according to this report. So they are just flipping double middle fingers to this government watchdog, saying we're not going to cooperate anymore, we're not going to answer your questions about where this money has gone, where it has flowed, and why. We are not going to talk to you. We're not going to provide the information that you're asking for. It's been a total blockade from the Treasury Department. And then State Department is just picking and choosing what they deign to cooperate on, withholding stuff that they don't want to pass along. And I will just underscore further again, this is our money, right? This is not their money. This isn't magic money. This is U.S. taxpayer money that is still being spent inside that country. A country now run, thanks to the Biden administration policy, by a terrorist organization. The same terrorist organization that provided safe harbor to al-Qaeda leading up to 9-11. With connections to all sorts of other horrible, heinous terror groups around that region. So money is still being spent. The spigot is on. And the Biden team has decided that they are not going to furnish the inspector general with information about where that money out of the spigot is going. It is a cessation of cooperation with a government watchdog that has the legal authority to do what it's supposed to do and fulfill its fundamental mission that was established in 2008. And as I said, none of the other administrations ever had a problem with this, ever refused to comply. Now, all of a sudden, this team, has made this call. And I ask you this, why? Why do you think that is? I mean, they're not allowed to do it, right? This is illegal. But doing things that are illegal, 
plainly abuses of power. For example, the student loan bailout, which multiple Democrats, including the Speaker of the House, had said the president didn't have authority to do it. He did it anyway for political reasons. You want to talk about lawlessness? They don't really blanch at that when it serves their interest. So they're in clear violation here. According to this office, according to the watchdog, the nonpartisan inspector general, if they're willing to generate some bad headlines, and this hasn't really been picked up into a huge scandal because it's a Democratic administration, there's other things happening, they probably feel like they can get away with it or at least take a a modest or minimal political hit for this. But there has to be a reason. They have to be doing this not just because they want to flex for no reason at all. Or that, you know, they don't like the guy who runs the office or something. It has to be because if the American people were to discover where some of this money was going and how it was being spent, then it would become a bigger scandal. All right, that's Occam's razor. I don't have any special knowledge. I'm not making any specific allegations. But it just logically follows that if they are legally required to convey information and disclose things about U.S. taxpayer funding, and out of nowhere they've decided they're going to stop doing that with no explanation in defiance of all the precedent and the congressional mandate, there has to be an incentive, some motivation for them to do it, and I think that motivation, that incentive, cannot be anything good. That is a reasonable conclusion to reach. And I'll just make one more point on this. The Republican House majority, when it is solidified, whatever the final number is going to be, might end up being quite slim. We've talked about this. The reason that even a narrow majority matters is not just putting an end to this runaway spending and a Democratic agenda with few checks or balances against it. Having a Republican House would be very consequential on that front, but also control of committees, hearings, oversight on the border crisis, on Afghanistan, on a whole host of issues. This administration is crying out for aggressive oversight. There need to be answers. The Republicans should prioritize things smartly. They can't just, you know, like a fire hose, spray everything. It'll get lost. It'll play into the administration and the media's hands. Prioritize certain things, do a diligent job about it, and start the accountability and oversight as soon as possible. And this might be not a bad place to start, quite frankly, this Afghanistan story. We will take a break. We will come right back. The Guy Benson Show returns after this short timeout. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. Well, this is interesting. Another tell from the teachers' unions. In this case, it's the NEA, the National Education Association. That's not Randy Weingarten's outfit. This is the other big one. They put out a tweet yesterday that I'm sure they thought was innocuous and just sort of like feel-goodery about what they do. The NEA tweeted, Educators love their students and know better than anyone what they need to learn, and to thrive. Well, you might have caught an omission there, and really an admission, where these teachers' union bosses believe that they know best for kids 
what is in the well-being and interest of those kids. Absent from the tweet is a mention of the people who actually know best, who actually should have control over what their kids learn and what they need to thrive. Betsy DeVos, the former education secretary, quote tweeted this from the NEA saying, you misspelled parents, which is her way of saying, once again, this huge telling blind spot revealed. I don't think they even thought about it. Like, oh, yeah, these are our kids and we know what's best for them. And isn't that wonderful? And parents, if they even like come to mind, can basically pound sand. And maybe after the election, they feel like the electoral punishment against their allies in the Democratic Party was pretty limited. So maybe it's back to standard operating procedure for these union bosses when it comes to this stuff. Maybe that's the lesson that they are learning. Now, part of the lesson that they probably don't want to think too much about, though, is there's a story in The New Yorker which was lamenting very, very upset this author about how successful conservatives were last week in school board races all across the country, posting some really significant wins. I saw some specific examples in Minnesota, in Michigan, but this was a pointed effort. This was a point of emphasis by parents at the local level to try to wrestle some control over this process and over these decisions away from sort of the big education bureaucracy that has been allowed to run amok for far too long. And a lot of people woke up during COVID and the pandemic and the harmful policies that we've talked about so often here. And there was a backlash in Virginia and New Jersey. There has been something of a backlash in the midterm elections, though nowhere near the scope that I was hoping for. But a lot of this stuff really does happen at the on the ground level the hyper-local level, and the fact that conservatives did so well and that it's freaking out the pro-teachers union journalists, stenographers out there, that has to be an encouraging sign. But again, just another accidental slip where the mask, I don't know if there's like a mask anymore. The mask is off. It hasn't slipped. It's gone. Teachers unions know best. That's what they actually believe. And I wonder what they might make over at the NEA or AFT of this new study in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is being widely criticized by some experts as shoddy and political. But this study purports to show so-called science that masking children in school may not work to contain COVID perfectly because, of course, it doesn't. But the authors conclude, quote, we believe that universal masking may be especially useful for mitigating effects of structural racism in schools, including potential deepening of educational inequities. So this is the next round of it. Masking being required for so-called science, even when the science doesn't support it. And then the pivot into equity nonsense. And structural racism, I guess, covering kids' faces and hampering their ability to learn and develop properly, that is now in the equity interests of kids. I mean, you can't make it up, but that was actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine with wokeness encroaching in dangerous ways all over the place. 
That is just a wild one to me. We'll keep an eye on it. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Josh Krasauer will be here talking about the elections and much more. That's straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show. The happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is refreshing and delicious and alcoholic. So we recommend it. But if you're 21 plus only, always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where they're sold near you as they expand. You can also order online if you'd like. TheLongDrink.com. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. Also at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter, and Instagram. With us now once again is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, welcome back. Hey, Guy. Welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. Delighted to have you. So we spoke after the election last week, but now we're a full week removed. And I know there are still a few things unresolved, but working off of the premise that seems pretty solid at this point, that the Democrats will net gain two governorships, that they will be flat or potentially gain a seat in the Senate, and that a Republican House majority will be somewhere in the ballpark of 220 to 215 maybe. If that ends up being roughly the final result here, which is extremely likely, what are some of your big takeaways one week beyond last Tuesday's election? Well, number one, big picture, it shows that we're still a divided country. And, uh, you know, we had a very evenly divided House, an evenly divided Senate, uh, and it came down to Georgia last last cycle, and Republicans gained the majority back in the House, lost the seat, but it's still a very narrow majority for the Democrats in the Senate, and it's coming down to Georgia yet again. So this is a divided country. Uh, they're they're fifty fifty. You know, America is, is the story of our of our political landscape. Now, I, you know, I, I think given as we talked so many times, given the overall environment headed into election day, Republicans should have done much better. Um, and what voters said on Election Day is they wanted to check the Biden administration. They wanted balance in government. But then they saw the Republican Party and they saw some of these more exotic Republican candidates, people who have been running to the right of where their electorates are. And they decided they also wanted to check the, 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 the MAGA movement, if you will, in the Republican Party. That's why Carrie Lake didn't win in Arizona. It's why Blake Masters was unsuccessful. It's why Walker's trailing in Georgia. Um, you know, a lot of candidates that just were not a good fit for their electorates and their states underperformed. So, you know, look, we're, we're going back. It's a chance for Republicans to reevaluate things because they, they certainly had the wind at their back in the 2022 midterms, but they didn't take advantage of it. And now we're going into a presidential year where the party, theoretically at least, has a chance to reset itself and come up with a better message and a better messenger. Before we get to the next election, just looking at this one, I've seen a lot of consternation about Arizona. Let's just focus on Arizona for a second. People wondering how is it that Kerry Lake and Blake Masters could lose, but Republicans in the House there could do quite well. They swept the competitive races. They're going to win six out of the nine seats, the House seats in that state, including, as I mentioned, all three kind of purple seats. The treasurer, the Republican state treasurer, is the leading vote getter in the whole state. 
and is going to win by in the ballpark of 11 percentage points, how can these things all be true at the same time? I know some people have taken almost like a conspiratorial posture on that. To me, the answer is staring at us right there in the numbers and just who the candidates are. And it's not just in Arizona, Josh. It seems like in the states and districts that decide our elections, voters, especially swinger independent voters, are making crystal clear the types of Republicans that they're willing to support, and in many cases I would say are eager to support, and the types of Republicans that they're not. And as I've been saying, I think those lessons, whether people like the lessons or not, whether they agree or not, those are the types of things that have to be taken into account if Republicans want to be electorally successful. There's a clear path to success. The question is, do they want to follow that path? Yeah, Guy, that's absolutely right. Candidates matter. Uh, we saw on both the left and the right, by the way, I mean, Stacey Abrams lost by a, a comfortable margin to Governor Kemp in Georgia because he was a better candidate. People voted for Governor Kemp, but they also voted for the Democrat, uh, Senator Warnock, on the same ticket. They vote for candidates. And voters are you know, independents in particular. You saw the independent voters who we thought might break towards the Republicans actually ended up slightly going with the Democrats because of the candidate quality in some of these races. And you had split tickets at the top of the ticket in New Hampshire. Republicans won. Don Bolduc was too too extreme for for a lot of these swing voters to support, so they went with Senator Hassan. You saw that in Georgia. You saw that in Arizona, and it's not Wisconsin hard. to it's some not, extent too. Wisconsin, yeah, with the governor Democrat, but they voted for Ron Johnson against Mandela Barnes. You know, this is not rocket science. It's 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 basic political science. And mainstream center right candidates would have been very successful in a lot of the races that Republicans lost. But the party ended up nominating some of the more extreme and exotic candidates. And, you know, we thought that the wave could have been big enough, uh, perhaps, to, to sweep some of these folks through when, when we saw some of the polling out there. But in the, in the end, it, actually, I think what happened is a lot of these uh, candidates affected the Republican Party brand writ large, so that even candidates that weren't quite as out there ended up hurting, you know, the, 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 the more prominent candidates, the Carrie Lakes of the world, the Blake Masters of the world, they ended up, you know, affecting the party brand, the, 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 the Trumpified party brand, if you will. So it even hurt the more moderate candidates in the House and some of the bluer parts of the country that Republicans had once hoped to contest. Josh, a story broke earlier this afternoon. Jake Sherman from Punchbowl News, previously Politico, he wrote this, Kevin McCarthy of California has defeated Andy Biggs to become the GOP nominee for Speaker of the House. He now has to spend the next seven weeks working to get the 218 supporters to win the floor vote that he would need. That vote will be January the 3rd. And by the way, this internal vote that put McCarthy in the driver's seat was overwhelming, 188 to 31, sort of almost nominal opposition from Andy Biggs. So this doesn't mean that McCarthy is going to be speaker, but it does mean that he is the odds-on favorite, which is not exactly a surprise, right? Yeah, it's not at all surprising that McCarthy won this vote against Andy Biggs. But look, you got those 31 Republicans that voted for Biggs, and you're going to get have to get probably 27, 28 of them to vote for you if you vote for McCarthy on, on the House floor, because that's not a, that's not a caucus vote. That's, that's a vote on the floor of the entire House, and you need probably 218 uh, to get there. So um, I, I still think McCarthy has some, some challenges ahead. You, you have a few Republicans, Matt Gates among them, saying that they, they won't support McCarthy. I, I think that he can paper things over with a whole lot of the, the Republican defectors and dissidents and, and, and right-wingers, if you will. But, you know, it's not going to be easy. And, and the margin of error is very, very narrow. If, if it is that, you know, you 220, I think is a reason, 220 or 221, 
is the number I have on my on my tally of, of how many seats Republicans are likely to have in the end. Uh, if that's the case, then he can only afford to lose two, uh, two or three uh, Republicans to, to, to win uh, the speakership vote on the House floor. So it, very narrow margins, and, and he's got to play very, very smart internal politics. And the problem he's facing is that the, the Republican Party is very ideologically uh, diverse. So you've got, you got these moderate uh, majority makers in New York and in, in more bluer parts of the country, and then you've got very, very right winger, very hard right wingers that um, have already said that they're going to oppose him no matter what. We've heard some noises about Mitch McConnell as well. I know it's sort of a fad or popular in certain parts of the right to try to blame him for what happened on Tuesday, which is something that I just almost completely reject. I think everyone can share a little bit of blame when things don't go well, but the idea that Mitch McConnell was the problem to me is just utter lunacy and nonsense. That being said, there are some conservatives saying that they should at least delay the leadership election. McConnell has to go. I don't really know who a viable challenger to him would be as Republican leader. And I think some of the key votes that I have seen publicly or spoken to privately uh, don't seem terribly concerned that this is real. It seems like McConnell will be fine in terms of staying in that position. Is that your read as well? Yeah, I, I, I don't see McConnell having any trouble getting the votes necessary. You know, there were some notable uh, folks criticizing McConnell, like uh, Senator Rubio, Senator Graham, uh, in the last few days, which, uh, you know, caught my eye. But, look, I, I find it pretty remarkable that uh, someone like Senator Rick Scott is, is leading the charge against McConnell, given that he ran the Senate committee. He was the one who, under you know, as chairman, uh, kind of owns his record, and, and they lost the seat, uh, or at least, you know, didn't gain a seat and maybe could lose a seat if, if Georgia goes the Democrats' way. Um, and there's not a whole lot of accountability. On, you know, you would think Scott would also be uh, in, in, in the spotlight and facing facing criticism. Now he's trying to criticize McConnell and deflect the blame, I think, for the party performance on election night. And uh, look, I, I think the reality is, writ, writ large, guy, that the House caucus is a lot more uh, right wing, has a lot more, um, you know, grass, grassroots conservatives in the Senate yes. side. Um, so you're going to, I mean, the math is there for McConnell. He's got, he's got an easy majority, I would say. But there are going you know, to be some dissenters, and, and he may face more defections than he has in past elections. Josh, stand by. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, there is an announcement planned tonight in Florida. Former President Trump is expected to announce that he's running for president again. What to make of the timing on all of this? What are the dynamics right now within the Republican Party? We will get Josh Krasauer's take and analysis on that next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back on the Guy Benson Show with Josh Krasauer talking about last week's elections. Meanwhile, this evening, this speech, this announcement at Mar-a-Lago that we have been building up to, or at least former President Trump is building up to. I saw one of his social media posts suggesting that this could be one of the most important announcements in the history of the country. Widely reported, of course, that he's going to announce his 2024 bid and launch that presidential campaign almost two years before the general election itself. Uh, My stance on this is pretty clear, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it down the line. But the timing of it, I think, is Interesting. I do wonder if there's any second guessing internally, like, is this really the right time to be doing this for all sorts of reasons? But I guess all indications are that he wants to do this. He's going to do it. And the plan was to do it tonight. And and that's what we're expecting, right? That's what we're expecting. I don't think this is a if you're if you're in the Trump camp, I don't think this helps him politically, because I know I think he thought that being the one the first guy out of the gate, if Republicans had a good night, that he, he could kind of 
almost try to try to try to intimidate other rivals from getting in. But now he's at a time when there are a lot of Republican recriminations going on. He's decided to go full speed ahead with an announcement when you know his stock is on the decline, and he's going to be if he announces tonight, he's going to be the only Republican in that 2024 field, and he won't have anyone to run against. So his, you know, he's going to lose political gravity, and he's going to still have to answer uh, questions about why his candidates did as poorly as they did. Um, and he's not going to have a DeSantis yet, or not going to have a Glenn Youngkin to, to go after. He's going to be all, in it all by himself. So you know, it, it's you know, Trump maybe th- he thrives. People say like the, the election in 2022 was about a choice versus a referendum. In a way, that's the same with the 2024 primary process. You know, Trump wants to make this a choice, but he's not going to. This is going to be a referendum for the next couple months. As he's hang, if he announces he's hanging out there as the only candidate, a lot of people are going to focus on on his record, on what happened and didn't happen, but what went wrong for Republicans in the midterm elections. And I, you know, you already uh, that showed Trump's Trump's numbers among Republicans are, are even lower than they were post January 6th. They haven't seen them that low since. When he first ran for office in 2016, so I think this is a very important tipping point in our in our politics and Republican Party politics. And this may have been a big blunder, or maybe a big blunder for Trump to announce after yeah, such a I tough guess night for Republicans. We'll see. Like I tend to agree with that for a number of reasons. I also will not pretend that I have any extra clairvoyance in my ability to predict things because, you know, we all get things right and wrong sometimes, and there have been so many strange things that have happened. I don't really know how this plays out. Logically, it doesn't seem like a great move for him, at least on the timing. If he's out there, like, taking pot shots at potential future rivals for months, and, you know, he's, like, exhausting people already through the holidays. We're not even over the current election yet. It just, it's, it's, a head scratcher to me beyond just sort of like an ego thing and an, an impatience thing on his end, which is what at least that's how I read this. But how it plays out over the next year, year and a half, I don't know. And you're right, Josh, that there are some signs that this support for Trump has softened. We've talked about some of the polling numbers at the national level and a bunch of these states where there's been a pretty dramatic shift away from Trump toward Ron DeSantis, at least for now. I wonder how that plays out in his mind. I don't know if those types of performances are sustainable for DeSantis, but it is certainly kind of fascinating to watch, even though all of this feels so premature. Well, Guy, the the advantage that Trump has is that he has a loyal block of voters that have been with him through thick and thin. And if there are a lot of Republicans, DeSantis among them, get in, then you could see a repeat of 2016, where sort of the Trump skeptical, uh, you know, candidates end up splitting up the the 60, 70 percent of the vote that's out there. But you know, again, this is why I don't understand why Trump's doing what he's doing because he's exposing himself to to, to the political uh, scrutiny like by announcing so early. And he's not going to be able to run against DeSantis. He's not going to be able to run against Youngkin. It's just going to be Trump hanging out there in the field. And then you have this, this subtle contrast with other Republican governors like a DeSantis who ended up doing quite well on, on election night. And, well, and maybe not so subtle. subtle yeah, but, and, he, and by the way, DeSantis, you know, today kind of reminded – he didn't mention Trump's name, but, but did remind uh, a lot of his supporters that he won big in Florida while a lot of other Republicans didn't do so well. In fact, let's play that soundbite. The question – and we've talked about it already on the show, but since you mentioned it – In Cut 23, here was DeSantis responding to a question. He didn't raise this on his own. He knew that a question was coming about this. Here's how he chose to handle it and field it. Cut 23. We would like to know what you think about Trump's big announcement and some of the less than flattering comments he has made about you. 
Well, you know, one of the things I've learned, like learned in this job, is um, uh, when you're do when you're leading, when you're getting getting things done. Yeah, you take incoming fire. That's just the nature of it. Uh, I roll out of bed in the morning. I've got corporate media outlets that have a spasm just the fact that I'm getting up in the morning, and it's constantly attacking. And this is just what's happened. I don't think any governor got attacked more, particularly by corporate media, than me over my four-year term. And yet, I think what you, what you learn is all that's just noise. And really what matters is, are you leading? Are you getting in front of issues? Uh, are you delivering results for people? And are you standing up for folks? And if you do that, then none of that stuff matters. And, and that's what we've done. We focused on results and leadership. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I would just uh, tell people to go check out the scoreboard from last Tuesday night. Uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, the fact of the matter is, we um, it, it was the the, the greatest uh, Republican victory in the history of the state of Florida. Josh, I mean, I have given my opinion on that answer. I wonder what you make of it. It's a very politically effective answer. I mean, he, he, he goes after all the same targets that, 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 that Trump often does, the media in particular. But he doesn't mention Trump's name. And he also, at the very end, reminds his supporters what the score, scoreboard was on, on election night. And look, I, you know, if there's anything that does Trump in, you know, he, he, he has perpetuated this notion that he's a winner, that, that it's all about winning for, for him. And frankly, that was a reason why he was – he went to such great lengths to deny the, the outcome in the 2020 election. Like he wanted his supporters to still see him as a winner. Well, look, his, even his, his, with the exception maybe of Kerry Lake, even some of his biggest supporters who lost on election night conceded their elections. There's not a lot of spin you can do about the outcome on the midterm elections. And you have a guy in DeSantis who not just ran up the score in Florida, but but showed how the Republican Party can expand its coalition with Hispanic voters and women. Right, which was which was the mention at the very end there. That's why he added that one point without specifically mentioning Trump or taking that bait in particular. He made his point, and obviously he was prepared for a question that was coming, and that was his response. Josh says it is politically effective. I tend to agree. Josh Krasauer, we've got to leave it there for now. Our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Josh, always appreciate it. Talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. And The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour is right back after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back on the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today in our first hour, retired General Jack Keene was our guest, reacting in real time at the time to some very big breaking news today involving Poland, Ukraine, and Russia. These apparently errant missile strikes that went into Poland, killing at least two people. Potentially a grave escalation of what's happening over there. We got the analysis from General Keene earlier in the program. We've been following this story and monitoring it throughout the show. Here's part of that conversation that I had earlier with General Keene. This was always part of the risk. If the Russians were going to keep fighting and doing so incompetently, at least to my eyes, not that I have any insight here, but it seems like this was probably a colossal screw-up on their part. If you fire a bunch of missiles and even one of them lands in the wrong place, Given some of the commitments that are out there in international alliances, they could create a big, big problem for themselves. Do you agree with me that this was probably a mistake on Russia's part as opposed to a deliberate 
acts of aggression, and then now what? Yeah, I, I suspect so. I mean, there's, there's no military target of value in the area there. Um, and it, it could be an errant missile, which they have a surprising uh, a lot of. Uh, we don't really talk too much about how many missiles actually miss their target, but it's uh, quite amazing how many really do. And the second thing is uh, a Ukrainian air defense system could have deflected a missile and, and made it an errant missile in, in terms of whatever debris was left. So yeah, we, we don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't understand why the Pentagon can't make a call to Poland and confirm the fact that they do have two dead and they and it came from a missile. That wouldn't take too hard to do. I know that uh, it's reported that uh, the Polish National Security Council is holding a meeting on this subject, which is certainly um, uh, very appropriate. But I think we'll... We'll get to the we'll get to the facts here. I don't think this is going to rise to a situation, you know, which would require some kind of a NATO response, unless there's clear evidence that uh, that this was intentional. And you started out by actually pointing out to our audience something that happens every single day, uh, dealing with Russia's military activities inside Ukraine, a fair degree of incompetence. And this could be another display of that, but we don't know the facts yet. Yeah, so what would trigger an Article 5 response from NATO? Is it, like, let's say we're able to establish here in the coming hours or coming days that these were Russian missiles that did, in fact, fly into Poland, crash, explode, detonate, kill at least two Poles, is at least the the initial report— Does there also have to be intent, like a a war-making intent, an act of aggression intent on Russia's part to then do something? And and if it's just a mistake and the Russians just say, oops, right, number one, do you believe the Russians because they lie all the time about everything? And is it acceptable to say, oh, well, don't do that again, uh, you know, but we'll give you a mulligan here because it was just a mistake. I'm just trying to figure out what the appropriate response would be, even if the determination is that this was not intentional. Yeah, uh, I doubt uh, seriously it would require a military response, given the scenario that you unfolded there. Uh, if it, if their intent was really to hit a military target, and, and we can prove that based on a trajectory, et cetera, and they just were not able to achieve that, and that changes the scenario a little bit, and it, w- it may re- uh that decision would have to be made by NATO, and, and certainly Poland would have a large say about all of that, um, then there, there could possibly be an option you know, to, for a very limited response. I remember when uh, our drone got shot down by the IRGC Iranians in the Trump administration, and uh, I went on Fox and said it's very likely that this drone – uh, was shot down at a tactical level without the permission of people at the senior level. And the tactical leader was just responding to it. And, uh, and, I, and I also referenced uh, a mistake that was made by a Navy destroyer, or it could have been a cruiser, I, I forget which, which fired on an Iranian airliner uh, because the chain of command at the tactical level actually believed that airliner – uh, was indeed an Iranian aircraft, a fighter aircraft uh, that could have been threatening to them. 
And uh, so these things do happen, and, you know, it takes some judgment uh, on the part of leaders to uh, t- to make what is, a, you know, take a reasonable course of action based on what really is the motivation and intent of the, of the country you're dealing with. As we continue to watch this situation unfold and continue to monitor what's happened over there, we will encourage you to check out that full interview with General Keene at GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. The entire show start to finish, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back the home stretch, we'll lighten things up a little bit, certainly compared to the last topic. Talking holidays and a little bit of a grab bag of topics next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Tuesday on The Guy Benson Show from London. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. I'll be off the next couple of shows, God willing, back on Friday. Just a note on that. We'll have some great guest hosts here, and it'll be fresh content. So I just want to give you that programming note. I will point out, being here in the U.K., they are fully in Christmas mode. Just Christmas stuff everywhere, Christmas music, Christmas lights, The restaurant that I went to last night was all of the above, just everything Christmas-related. And I will not rehash my position on this because I've commented on it many times over. I've done so year after year after year. I am a somewhat cantankerous Thanksgiving supremacist, or at least someone who is very defensive of Thanksgiving, and I don't like the encroachment of Christmas too early because Thanksgiving needs to stand on its own. You know my position on that. And I love Christmas. I like how Thanksgiving leads us gently into the holiday season with this wonderful festive start and this feast, and then it's off to the races. That's my position. However, I had to sort of second-guess my own position while I'm here because they don't do Thanksgiving here. Thanksgiving is quintessentially an American holiday invented by us. And so while I think it's great, it's just not something that's a tradition anywhere else. And so is it therefore more acceptable or at least less unacceptable for the Christmas creep to start earlier in a way that is less offensive to me here across the pond? And I'm not really sure. I think I'm open to it. I was not viscerally mad about it because they're not actually – horning in on territory that should be Thanksgiving territory because they don't do it here. I think that's actually kind of fair. And, Christine, I think that you are already drawing the incorrect lessons from this. Of course I am because I feel like now (laughs) everything is is changing. So uh, I'll have you know we have not decorated in this home yet just due to the fact that we were all sick this weekend. But um, Christmas decorating will start and actually end on Sunday. Do you think that there's any chance that your illness preventing you from doing it might have been, I don't know, like a little little nudge from God being like, it's too soon, Christine? Are you telling me God got Megan and I sick so I couldn't decorate for Christmas? It, I, I, I'm not actually saying that. I'm just really grasping at straws a little bit to see if I yeah. can convince you somehow, some way. But go on. And also, my mother is hosting Thanksgiving, and there's going to be a lot of family there that are not going to be around for Christmas. So I'm trying to encourage her to mm. decorate the whole house so then everybody can enjoy because she, she decorates beautifully. And actually, my sister and I have to go help her this weekend because 
she recently fell off a ladder and you need a ladder to decorate her house. Like that's how oh, much gosh. decoration. Is she okay? Yeah. Uh, she, she will be. She, she's in major physical therapy. They're talking surgery. Yeah. Oh, man. A woman of 76 years old. Sorry, mom. Uh, should never reason whatsoever i'm just going to put it out there always ask your children for help please but uh so i will be helping her uh do some stuff for thanksgiving and i think i'm gonna start pulling out her christmas decor and just start Mm. doing it for her and see what she Mm. says i will point out that thanksgiving not to alarm anyone i saw a few people tweeting about this thanksgiving is nine days away we are closing it on a week out And it's sneaking up certainly on me, even as the big Thanksgiving guy, because we've been completely immersed in election, 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 right? So all of a sudden you've got this big holiday we're hosting, and we've got a turkey reserved. So I think that's kind of the main deal, right? And my parents are coming down. My sister is coming down. Like, it'll be a fun little crew. But all of a sudden, like, you know, day after tomorrow, we're one week away from Thanksgiving. So just be prepared. I did see a story that because of inflation, some people are doing the math and realizing that it could be cheaper to eat out for the Thanksgiving feast than getting all the fixins and cooking at home. And I understand that. There was one grocery chain, Aldi, which is a discount chain. They've got really good prices in general. They did, at least for a period of time, I'm not sure if it's still active, you should Google this, They were doing like a flashback price rollback to what all the prices were in 2019 ahead of Thanksgiving just to help people, which I think is a very cool thing that they did. I am just, as you might imagine, being a traditionalist, I am such an advocate, even with the difficulty right now and the inflation, of having a home-cooked Thanksgiving meal at someone's house and doing it that way. I'm not saying that a restaurant could not make an absolutely delicious Thanksgiving meal. I'm sure they absolutely could. And it might be more affordable, and I get that. It just, to me, it would be personally, and I'm not necessarily projecting this on anyone else or their experience. For me, if I had to eat out for Thanksgiving, that would be sad for me. And I say that as someone who we have a tradition in my family, every Christmas Eve we go out to dinner. We cook Christmas Day, but we go out to a restaurant Christmas Eve. That doesn't seem odd to me. That doesn't seem off or, you know, sacrilegious when it comes to holiday tradition. But I don't know, there's there's so much wrapped up in the food component of Thanksgiving. It's really like the central element of the whole holiday that I'm just a big fan of doing it at a home with all those smells wafting through the house throughout the day. And uh, it's just something, obviously, that I get a bit sentimental about. Christine, I know that you are maybe less sentimental than I am about this particular holiday, but I would imagine you would not be rushing out to a restaurant oh i would totally go to a restaurant for thanksgiving but but what's funny is i couldn't imagine ever being at a restaurant on christmas eve like that to me is home like everybody by the tree we're all you know we're waiting for presents and this and that i could not imagine going to a restaurant on christmas eve ever oh yeah we always do we pick a different restaurant every year. We, we double up occasionally, you know, well, second or third time, but we pick a new place and we go out and we have a nice dinner out. And then we typically go to church before. So church, then dinner, then home, one round of gifts, maybe a movie, and then time for bed for Santa, et cetera, right? That's what we do. 
in our house, and I'm sure we'll talk much more about that next month. But one of the other components, just to pull it back to Thanksgiving, because you know me, Dan was actually making this point on our call earlier, and I'm sort of torn on how I feel about this. Black Friday, which is associated with Thanksgiving, of course, all the sales, it's getting earlier and earlier that you're starting to see Black Friday opportunities and sort of discount codes and deals that are being offered. And that's a huge part of the, I guess, corporate and commercial component of Black Friday and sort of the Thanksgiving weekend, which is different. That That's different than the actual holiday itself. But if Black Friday sales are starting earlier, does that mean that Thanksgiving is starting to creep earlier? And am I okay with that as a big Thanksgiving fan? I'm not really sure. Dan, are you someone who prefers to do Black Friday shopping on that day itself? That is not something terribly sacred to me, frankly. Well, I used to go with relatives. Remember when, like, flat-screen TVs started? And, like, yes. that was the big thing was, like, you got to get there early. People would go at, like, midnight. Oh, and, and there were, like, stampedes yeah. into these places. And my uncles would take me, and I would go as, when I was younger. It was, like, such a big deal, and that's all just gone. Now there's, like, Cyber Monday, too, where they have deals. And, like, every e- other email I get now is just a Black Friday deal. I'm like, it's not Black Friday. What are you doing? Christine, I would guess you're probably done with your Christmas shopping knowing you already. I have, like, the main stuff done. Some of it's coming here. Some of it's being sent to my mom by the end of this week for Miss Megan. But I do – I agree. Like, I miss that Thursday night, you know, where, like, all of my cousins and I, like, you know, we would help – whoever was hosting, you know, clean up. And then we would all go out, uh, possibly go get some drinks. And then we would start shopping at like midnight. And it was so much fun. I believe it or not, guy, I cannot get anybody to go with me anymore to do that. I Hmm. begged and begged people and shockingly, which I cannot believe nobody wants to do this. Yeah, I can believe it. I can very much believe that fact check. True. Yeah, that that checks out. But the thing is, Christine, Because you are so fastidious about doing your Christmas shopping so early, do you actually perhaps miss out on some of the discounts and the deals that start happening right around Thanksgiving? Are you shooting yourself in the foot by how early you start? Uh, You make a very good point uh, because there's one big, big thing I need to get, uh, Miss Megan. And uh, my husband's like, you have to wait. I know this is going to go on sale. Like, please, I do not want... To, you know, lose the sale. So I'm, I'm trusting him. Uh, but I have to say, and I bet you a lot of people do this too. When you start shopping so early and you think you're done, once you get to like the week before Christmas, you start panicking that you, do, you didn't do enough or cause it's been so long that you start, pa- or maybe I'm the only one. I start panic shopping and then a lot of yeah, people. That, that's also life, on brand. That sounds very, all of this is very on brand. It's irrational, but, you know, there you go. I mean, QED. I've done nothing. No Christmas shopping whatsoever. I might start a little too late, honestly, for my own good sometimes. Maybe I'll be better this year. We'll see. Before we go very quickly, since we're on the topic of random grab bag of holidays, Wyatt made a point earlier that was somewhat amusing. Wyatt, I was talking about Thanksgiving being a purely American holiday, Wyatt just recently discovered another popular holiday is not exclusive to the United States. He is an America first kind of guy sometimes. But, Wyatt, what did you learn this year? Wow, I'm being called out. Um, 
I, I just feel <laughs> like I just didn't know that Halloween was, was a global thing. Like other countries celebrated Halloween. And I just found that out this year. I just thought it was an American thing. I thought it was just an American like folktale type thing that, that people did, but supposedly other countries do it as well. Yeah, it's definitely a global thing. Maybe not every single place all around the world. It's not as widespread as some of these other holidays, but it's grown in popularity. I think it's probably the biggest deal in the U.S. is kind of my sense of it, but it's it's not purely American in the way that Thanksgiving is, which is why I'm such a fan, among other reasons. With that being said, here over in the U.K., we've got to go. We're out of time. Heading back to the United States, back home in the next couple of days, returning to the airwaves on Friday. We'll have guest hosts the next couple of days, so please do tune in for that. Obviously, lots of news happening, lots of news breaking, a very busy news week, even though we're kind of in the slowdown part of the year. Not this year. It seems like we don't really do slowdowns anymore in American politics. So with that, thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you very soon. It is The Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.